phone with me, uh, or scroll with me if you have a smartphone, uh, to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. The Sunday before Christmas is a great time to think about the love of God. And so uh, I have picked this psalm uh, for that very reason. Um, the psalm is very similar to the one that we looked at last week, which Psalm 126, which we looked at the theme being joy in Psalm 126. 26. This one puts the focus on God's love. Very, very similar psalm. Um, but in this psalm, in Psalm 85, we will see that the prayer for God's saving love is answered in the giving of Jesus Christ. The prayer for God's saving love is answered in the giving of Jesus Christ. And if you read Psalm 85, you will not see Jesus Christ's name anywhere. But trust me, he is there very explicitly. Uh, and this will be, Lord willing, uh, an encouragement to us all. Let us read these words. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of God. We do not know exactly what the context is here in uh, Psalm 85. We can assume, like last week's uh, Psalm 126 uh, and all the texts that we've been uh, looking at uh, in December, it refers to Israel's return from the exile in Babylon. There is a remembrance of God's love to them in returning the people of God to the land of God's people, Canaan, uh, you know, Israel. And that is the remembrance of God's love that is being spoken of here. 
It's not speaking likely of Egypt and coming out and the Exodus. It's speaking about coming out of the exile. But for whatever reason, and that reason we're not sure of, for whatever reason, these people are facing affliction in the land. Having come out of exile, having come out of slavery, they're facing affliction in the land. And we're told that they know that in some sense God's wrath is upon them afresh because of their sin. I won't go into all of this, but under the Mosaic Covenant, which governed Israel's time in the land, uh, in Psalm 28, you can read it for yourself. Uh, sorry, not Psalm 28. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. There was blessings promised to Israel for obedience, and there were curses promised for disobedience governing their time in the land. The exile was a curse for ongoing disobedience. And here they are back in the land, facing once again God's wrath. So the psalm is speaking about what God has done, and there's a prayer and a hope for future blessing uh, from God. And that's going to be our focus. Real quick way to break these down. Some of you appreciate it. Uh, verses 1 to 3, there's a remembrance of God's love. Uh, in verses 4 to 8, there's a prayer asking for God's love. And then, uh, I love this section, verses 9 to 13, there's expecting God's love. Um, so we're going to notice in verses uh, 1, uh, verses 1 to 3, uh, it says that God was favorable to the land and he restored the fortunes of Jacob. There's the land and then there's the fortunes of Jacob, which is Jacob, what was his name after he was renamed by God? Israel, right? patriarch of the, the Israelites. So you've got land and you've got people and they fit uh, together. There's a discussion of sin, there's a discussion of wrath, forgiving the iniquity of the people, covering their sin. What's the connection between the land and the, uh, the people and sin and wrath? The reason is, and the, the answer for why this is all a nice summary of the remembrance of God's love, is that it was sin that kept them from the land, and sin that kept them from remaining in the land. And so if God forgives the iniquity of his people, they get to remain in God's place, God's land. This land of, we heard during the Exodus, the land of milk and honey, right? It's a place of God's blessing of his people. Where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no judgment. There is no judgment from God. So this is a remembrance of it. This great blessing of God's love on this people that is spoken of in these first three verses is that God withdrew his wrath. Withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And this is one of the reasons why, even though it is unpopular, we must speak of sin. Because it is against the backdrop of sin and wrath and darkness that God's love shines very brightly. As Jesus said to the, the woman who was a sinner uh, in Luke 7, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Uh, when we, we see and uh, comprehend the depth 
of our own sin, we see God's glory shining brightly. So these people had an experience. The psalmist had an experience. They had a remarkable proof of God's love to them in the past. And God's love in the past helps us to not get overwhelmed in the present, in our present difficulty. God has been faithful to me in the past. God has shown me love in the past. He will show me in the future. And it helps us to ask for God's blessing on us in the future. So God has shown his love to the people. He's shown his love in putting them in the land. And therefore they're able to trust God and have confidence. And that leads, that remembrance of what God has done, leads to this prayer in verses 4 to 8. Notice how God is, God is addressed in this prayer. It says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Think about that. Isn't that great? O God of our salvation. Not just some distant God that has nothing to do with people. It's the God who saves. God worthy of worship. It says, restore us, put away your indignation. Will you be angry with us forever? God's wrath, as Andrew has so often preached, God's, God's wrath is his eternal hatred towards sin. It is his eternal anger against sin. And it is right. What kind of world would we live in if without an angry God? A God that looks at abuse and molestation and murder and all those horrible, horrible things and says, I'm your loving God. I'll be pretty chill. God is eternally angry at sin. But here in this text, we see that his anger does not burn against his people because he is also merciful. There is a length of mercy. And let's not forget for these people here, anger is earned. Mercy is not earned. Mercy is given. It is an outworking of who God is. He's angry against sin, but he gives mercy. And so there's a need for restoration for whatever reason for these people. And the need for restoration comes out of the fact that people continually sin. Do we not? Do we not? The need for restoration, we must grasp this, the need for restoration, the need for this prayer was not because of a lack of God's love, but because of their own sin. God had done nothing wrong. They had done everything wrong. But the beautiful thing in verse 6 and 7, this appeal in this prayer comes in two ways. He says, he prays for God's salvation on the basis of God's love, and then secondly, on the basis, in verse 7, that God's people may rejoice in him. A prayer 
for restoration that is based entirely on God and who He is. It's an appeal of, if you restore us, you'll show your love brightly. And if you restore us, you'll have a people that rejoice in you. Not, we deserve it. Save us, we deserve it. It's save us because you are great, God. You are wonderful. And we will rejoice in your salvation. It shows something of the character of who God is. I was reminded of Exodus 34, that great text to Moses. Exodus 34, verses 5 to 8. Listen to this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so, the illustration that I've heard that I I love, it's God has for his people a very long wick. Judgment comes slowly, but God is by one who will no means clear the guilty. And this is the need for salvation and restoration. Psalm 30 verse 5, His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for a lifetime. What are these people appealing to? They're appealing to God's favor being upon them. He's saying, God, you're good, you're worthy of being worshipped. Give joy to your people. Now many times, we've said from this pulpit, God does not just stop hating sin and forgive it. God is not schizophrenic, right, in his wrath and his mercy. To remove wrath requires God's justice to be satisfied. To remove wrath requires God's justice to be satisfied. Otherwise, it would be someone who just says, of course, I'll just forgive. I forgive the guilty. And require justice, no justice to be paid out. God's not like that. God is not unjust. To remove wrath requires God's justice to be satisfied. And this is why verses 9 to 13 are so incredibly good. There's an expectation of God's love. Right? Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. This is language in verses 8 and 9 of, of covenant keeping, that God will keep his promise. He has promised these people love. God's love is present, and there is a hope of salvation, even if it appears to not be there in the circumstances at the moment. There's this expectation that comes out of the end of the prayer. It says, let me hear what the Lord will speak. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. There's an expectation that if we cry out to God, expecting his salvation and trusting in him for who he is, he will speak words of peace to his people. 
And that's comforting them in the moment. Now look at verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Look at that section. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Look at that. This is language of two people going for a walk. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. They say hello. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This is friends coming down the street, hugging and going together. What is this section? Is it just a nice poem of some sort? It's a prophecy. I looked at some commentaries. Everyone agrees. Calvin says this, I cordially embrace the opinion which is held by many that we have here a prophecy concerning the kingdom of Christ. You see, prophecies aren't just the government shall be on his shoulder, a child shall be born in Bethlehem to a virgin. Prophecies are not just that, Psalm 53. Um, those are very explicit prophecies. But there are other prophecies all throughout the Bible. Love, we're told, requires faithfulness. Think about that. Imagine love with no faithfulness. That's love that disappears. Love requires faithfulness. Righteousness leads to peace. Sin leads to rebellion. The baby in the manger is delivery of this prayed for and expected love of God. Faithfulness springs up from the ground in verse 11. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Do we see that? In Jesus Christ, in that baby, Earth and heaven meet. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He is our peace, we're told in Ephesians 2. He is wisdom, righteousness of God given to us. Earth and heaven meet. 100% man, 100% God. Fully God, fully man, without division. In the incarnation, that wonderful miracle, earth and heaven meet. True faithfulness and divine righteousness meeting in a child. And then, there is the growth of this kingdom. The land will yield its increase. 
That land in Israel is so important. It is so important. That kingdom of Israel so important. But it's not the final state. It's not big enough. It's not righteous enough. The Messiah, the King, His kingdom will be even greater. This prophecy here of love and righteousness and truth and faithfulness all meeting together, speaking of what Christ's reign will be like, and it will the land will yield its increase, so that the glory of the Lord shall be everywhere. Do you remember Habakkuk's words? Habakkuk 2.14, it says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You might be in your time at home at the end of the year thinking, what might next year bring? And the answer is, you don't know. What's going to happen to me? How are these things going to go? How is that relationship going to work out? How is my job going to go this year? How is whatever I'm doing? How, how are things going to go? What does the future bring? We never know until it happens. Apart from when God tells us. And what God has told us that the future will bring a kingdom of Christ with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and the earth will be filled with his glory. That's the future. That is the grounds of our hope. Truth and righteousness coming from, from the earth, and heaven, heaven's righteousness offered up, and covering the earth. That is what this king will bring. There shall be no corner of the earth, and I'm aware that it's round. There's no corner of the earth. Not flat, just so you know, it's a globe. Um, um, there will be no corner of the earth where Christ's reign will not be found. And that's why we're told in Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We have here steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. They're meeting, they're coming together. One commentator says, Where do all these attributes meet? They meet in a person, Christ Jesus. Where are they reconciled? At Calvary, where he poured out his life. Love, faithfulness, righteousness, peace, mercy, all coming together to save God's people. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this text? Firstly, I would say this. We must each and every one of us find the love of God in Jesus Christ. We must find it. We must hold on to it. Being a Christian is one who has received and found the love of God in Jesus Christ. This text actually shows us that 
those threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus Christ is the one who speaks peace to God's people. He is the prophet who speaks peace to God's people. He is the priest who covers iniquity, as we read in the first three verses. He forgives the wrath of God. And he is the king who rules with righteousness and peace and faithfulness. He is all three of those. And it is the love of God shown to fallen humanity in Christ that should lead us to repentance. We are reconciled with God by trusting in Him, and we find God's love in receiving His Son by faith. We earn wrath, but we receive the forgiveness of all of our sins and receive reconciliation in the Son. Secondly, this is a constant thing. This is why we take the Lord's Supper each Sunday. We must remember and make much of the love of God. Right? Remember and make much of the love of God. When you see nativity scenes everywhere, right? Some of you got them in your home. You got a nativity scene. Uh, make one out of Duplo. Whatever you do. Um, that baby in the manger wrapped in swaddling cloths was wrapped in burial cloths. He was born to die. And he died to be raised again and to rule forever. When we can see the darkness of sin and rebellion and our own wrongdoing and what we are rightly owed for it against that backdrop God's love shines brightly. Make much of the love of God. There's been a criticism that I've seen, and they say that evangelical churches don't speak much about the the wrath of God and sin, and that, that's true. And they say, well, they just tend to speak about the love of God, and we need to balance it out. And to that I just say, yeah, we speak of, we must speak of sin, we must speak of the need for a Savior, but never ever diminish the love of God. We want to raise everything up. God's love is amazing, and we should believe that. We should be moved by that. Nothing in encourages us more to pray and seek God than being captured by how great His love is for us. Because He's a loving God, and therefore we should go to Him. Go to the throne of grace, knowing how good God has been to us. And thirdly, this tells us something of how we live. We live as subjects of the kingdom of Christ. Jesus Christ is the king who shares all of these attributes that we read about in the Son. Therefore, his kingdom is to be governed through these things that we see. Righteousness, love, faithfulness, peace. A Christian is the subject of a king. His kingdom is here now in part. It will be here in its fullness when he returns. And therefore, as a Christian, 
Maybe you should get a, a, a T-shirt made up with this with with uh, on the back, you know, like a sports logo, number five, ambassador of Jesus Christ, because that's what we are. We're subjects of the king, a righteous, loving king, and the church is his embassy in the world, the embassy of the kingdom of God amidst the world as we wait the fullness of his coming. So we live as subjects of the king, seek to live loving lives, faithful lives, righteous lives, peaceful lives. That's how we are to live. Hey, as we come to the Lord's Supper, uh, let us let us pray and just think on the love of God.